Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Politically Speaking, Holyrood's weekly political podcast. I'm Jenny Davidson and I'm here with my colleague Andrew Learmonth. Now we're three weeks out from the election, but it's been quite a strange week of campaigning, hasn't it, Andrew? Uh, how's Jenny? So things kind of came to a stop on Friday after we learned about the death of the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip. Um, all the parties sort of put their campaigns on pause for the, the weekend. Um, so that meant, you know, no one out there putting leaflets through doors, no press releases being sent out, no commenting on stories or, or, or anything like that. Just very much everyone just kind of took the weekend off. And then what we had on Monday, we had quite unusual sight, um, entirely unusual, never unprecedented sight even, of MSPs being recalled to Parliament uh, to pay tribute to the Prince. Um, now, the only reason this could happen is because, you know, normally at the end of the Parliament recession, Parliament is dissolved, you know, it ends, and MSPs stop being MSPs and become candidates or ex-MSPs. Um, but because of the coronavirus pandemic, the parliament went into recess at the end of the term. So, so technically, you know, they were able just to kind of come all back and, and we had sort of brief speeches from the party leaders. And then sort of slowly after that, we've seen, you know, the campaign picking up again with some uh, uh, fairly hefty policy announcements coming out quite soon after. That's right. And obviously we're, we're coming up to the manifesto launches for each of the parties. Some of them at the end of this week, others the beginning of, of next week. But, you know, they tend not to launch all their policies just at the manifesto because you wouldn't get the same kind of attention as, as you do with this trickle out approach that they've been following. So has there been anything that you've seen uh, announced this week that you've, you found particularly interesting? Yeah, there's been quite a few things, really, yeah. I mean, it's interesting just thinking about the manifesto launches is that, of course, Labour were due to launch their manifesto on, on Monday, but because of the uh, of the, the recall of Parliament, because of the you know the period of uh, of pause to mourn the Prince, that's now been pushed back until uh, next week, isn't it? It's next Tuesday, I think. Um, so, yeah, so talking about uh, stuff that we know about already, there's been a, a few things that have sort of, you know, definitely caught my eyes. Um, you know, I thought uh, we sort of had the the Tories were calling for an additional £325 million for mental health services. So, so that's, you know, uh, mental health seems to be a, a key issue for a number of the parties, actually. And we had Labour uh, launch their billion pound jobs plan. We had the, um, oh, one thing that I thought was quite an interesting one, quite an interesting policy from the Greens. Uh, one, I think, could very easily, very likely become law in the next session of the of Hollywood was a, a pledge to automatically grant anonymity to accusers in, in sexual offence uh, cases. Because, uh, uh, as you'll know, uh, uh, while that happens automatically in, in England, you know it doesn't happen automatically up, up here. Um, and uh, the only way that someone who accuses someone of, of a sex offence can be granted anonymity as if, as if there's a, a court order. Um, so yeah, that's 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 an interesting. What about you? Have you seen anything that's uh, uh, picked your interest? Yeah, I thought the the Lib Dems policy of uh, switching one million 
gas boilers over to renewable sources by 2030 was was pretty ambitious and, and could have a, a big impact on climate change, obviously, if that was achieved, because home heating is one of the issues we still need to tackle, particularly along, along with transport. Um, I thought that the Labour policy um, of introducing a, a £75 prepaid card for every adult to kind of revive the high streets after the coronavirus lockdown. It would be a card that you could only spend in person, high street shops, you couldn't, you couldn't use it online. That's quite an interesting idea. I agree that the Conservatives' announcement on mental health to increase the, the budget for mental health to 10% of the total health budget could have quite a, a big impact. And they're talking about having more sort of community mental health support as well. Um, the the SNP announcement about um, exempting poorer pupils from the cost of school trips, getting rid of fees for practical subjects like home economics, that could make quite a, a difference as well. That that would really, you know, bring a lot more fairness in schools. And, you know, it's a question anyway, why, you know, why are people being asked to pay extra for, for studying poor subjects that they've just picked as part of their curriculum? Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think it'd be really interesting one that one. You know, things like music lessons and art classes as well, you know, why should students be expected to, to you know, pay for the lessons, pay for the instruments or pay for the, the supplies? Yeah. And yeah. um, what would you spend your £75 voucher on? If, uh, if Anna Sara gave you £75 to spend, what would you spend it on, Jenny? Well, my my normal answer would be books, but I'm trying to resist buying more and more books that I haven't read because I've got so many on my bookshelves already. So I could probably do with um, some new clothes after so long, you know, clothes shopping. So practically speaking, I think high street clothes shopping. Right, okay, okay. That's a good guess. That's a good answer. Yeah. Good answer. I mean, it's interesting, don't you think, in terms of these policy announcements, um, there's a certain, there's an irony perhaps in, anything the SNP announces because obviously they've been in government now for 14 years so you know anything they announce you think well why did you not already do this so it's such a great idea and needs to be done um, but equally the other parties have a problem in that everything's predicting that SNP are going to become the government again so there's a question about well how many of these policies can they actually make happen if you know if they don't get support of another party or perhaps the SNP if they get an outright majority. So everybody's got difficulties in terms of their, their policy announcements in this election. Yeah, it was really interesting, isn't it? I mean, so um, uh, we're speaking on, on Tuesday and Labour have just released their latest ad campaign, which is about, you know, Scotland deserves a better opposition. Uh, and then you've got the, the, the Conservatives, Douglas Ross, sort of not looking to become the next government, but looking to deprive the SNP of a majority. So it's yeah, everyone has pretty much accepted that the SNP are in some form or a way going to win the next election and will be the only party who are, who are in a place to, to implement policies. Yeah. yeah, it is very interesting. And talking about um, ad campaigns, actually, it's worth mentioning party political broadcasts because, you know, the SNP were kind of mocked a bit last week for their broadcast which you know has sort of dystopian 1984 overtones <laughs> you know bank of television screens at one wall with just nicola sturgeon's um face and you know the line there there's only one choice and then the alba party sort of outdone that with a, a kind of brave heart advert that's just like <laughs> up the cringe levels a you know a million times over <laughs> Yeah, yeah. One of my old editors uh, said that I should uh, never use the word Orwellian. You just get really upset if anyone ever used the word Orwellian. But uh, I think in response to the, that SNP ad campaign, it would have been perfectly legitimate to have used the word 
or Orwellian. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I, I, the Alpo one, which was uh, so the actor who played Robert the Bruce Angus McFadden in the uh, in the Braveheart films, and then in his own sequel, and who now plays Superman's dad in the, the TV show Clark and Lois. He he basically he came out and um, supported Alpa, uh, and so he I think directed the film, produced the, the, the broadcast and, 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 and did the voiceover for it all. And in fairness, Alex Salmon came out and defended it and said, you know, actually, there's a lot, uh, this is a great piece of filmmaking. And, you know, the, the, the Bruce's words about the small focus is making a difference is, is still true. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's uh, as with all of these things, so I'm never entirely sure how much of a difference they make to voters, you know? Um, do they actually affect votes? What do you think? Do you think, do you think people are, will switch their votes after seeing one of these PPPs? I suspect not, unless they were already a little bit that way inclined. So I suspect, you know, there might be perhaps swaying between different pro-independence parties, mm. um, perhaps yeah. a little bit. It's harder between the pro-unionist parties. You know, people aren't necessarily going to switch between Conservatives and Labour, Labour and Conservatives unless um, opposing independence is, is really their their main concern and you know and there's some kind of tactical voting going on that's diff- difficult because their policies are much further apart perhaps than the pro-independence ones which is a bit easier to pull people back and, and forward that way but yeah I mean I think the constitution's dominating don't you think I mean for all we've, we've had these policy pledges we've had lots of discussion about you know what they what they would like to see um, in various different areas if they were in power. Um, you know, have those really cut through? Is, is that making a difference? Is that what people are going to vote on? You know, I don't think it is. I think I think the Constitution has dominated. So I just kind of this up there, and I, and I might have got this wrong, but I think since the 2014 referendum, Scots have been asked to exercise a democratic right to go to the polling station seven times. Does that sound right? Seven times now. That sounds and so right. So in each of those votes... Yeah, yeah. And each of those votes, the constitution has been a key factor, has been prominent. But I don't know that it's ever dominated in any previous vote in the way that it has now, you know? And I think, I think you know, that's partly because there's a real sort of 50-50 division uh, among voters on the issue. I, I think it's also because parties like the SNP and the Tories, uh, they know that it energises their vote. And it's also because of, you know, Alex Salmond and Alpa, as we were mentioning there, you know, the, their, his re-emergence onto the scene, you know, he's, he's sort of putting pressure on, on, on Nicola Sturgeon. So so last week, he, in one of the big sort of policy announcements, I suppose, from his party, he came out and said that if, you know, there's a pro-independence majority return to Holyrood uh, after the May the 6th votes and uh, Alpa MSPs uh, form part of that majority, then he would push forward a legislation to, or push, make, basically sort of put a vote to MSPs to demand negotiations on independence start within the first week of the next parliament. So, which is, you know, uh, uh, given that Nicola Sturgeon has said, you know, she doesn't believe that there should be a referendum until the pandemic's over, even if that's, you know, after 2023, then that's, that's quite a sort of a stark contrast between the, 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 the two positions. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that's that's really been the, the big issue so far. I mean, obviously, the launch of the Alpa party right at the start of this campaign has caused ripples and it's caused a lot of uncertainty. Probably voters still deciding 
what they're going to do tactically in terms of which you know party they're going to choose for their their second vote and we've seen that in opinion polls with you know widely different results but that hasn't actually been the the issue so much this week since since campaigning restarted um that's not the controversy we've seen between the, the three pro-independence parties alapa smp and the, the greens this week is it no, no, it's not. So, so Alpa had their, their, their women's summit over the weekend with around 400 uh, delegates taking part. Because um, I suppose the other thing we have to really, you know, when we talk about Alpa, the, the difference between Alpa and the SNP, and I suppose the split from the SNP that has ultimately formed Alpa, you know, it comes down not just to different approaches to independence, but a lot of it comes down to different approaches to, what I, I suppose, um, uh, women's rights issues. I, I, I don't know if that's the best way of describing it, but you know, certainly uh, there are a lot of, there are some, I, I, there's a number of people in the SNP who objected to the Scottish government's planned reforms or aspects of the Scottish government's planned reforms to the Gender Recognition Act, who had difficulties with the, the, the hate crime legislation, uh, a couple of other things. And so, so many of those uh, uh, women have, have, you know, left the SNP and have now joined ALPA. So, there was a big conference over the weekend, and one of the speakers there, a candidate called Margaret Lynch. Now, she was reported as saying that uh, you know a number or two LGBT plus organisations in Scotland were advocating for the age of consent to be lowered to ten. Um, now, they both denied this. Both their organisations said that's absolutely one hundred percent inaccurate, and you know, uh, Stonewall said it was categorically untrue and. Um, you know, uh, uh, was harmful and dangerous and irresponsible as well. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 caused. This has been an issue that's been ongoing for a while. Issues about gender, mm. issues about women's rights, and issues about trans rights and reform of the gender recognition act. So it's kind of a it's it's something that you know inflames people's uh, exist. Yeah. You know, ex- inflames existing tensions. Really, doesn't it? Um, and you know, and it's 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 really ignited some, um, you know, some quite strong responses from SNP and Green members, candidates um, about the you know about mm. this you know what's reported to have been said at this Alpha Women's Conference, um, you know, to the point of Alex Salmond having to um, issue a. A statement saying that he was drawing the line at the treatment of his candidates that you know talking about the irony of people who advocate hate speech legislation then resorting to physical threats and, and bullying and just saying this you know this is not acceptable it was reported to be candidates uh, reported to the police for threats mm. so yeah really it's, it's nasty really, really messy really nasty, quite divisive um and uh it's you know i, I it's a really tricky one, isn't it? It's such a... Uh, it's coming. I don't use the phrase culture war because I don't think that does it justice. And I think that, that almost sort of dismisses it or diminishes it. But there is a real sort of... You know, a real division. I think it's a, a rights war, really, isn't it? It's a, it's a rights war. It's about whose who's rights who, and whose concerns take precedence and, you know, and to some extent a free speech war about who's allowed to say what you know what constitutes hate speech what constitutes a threat what you know what's just you know generally nasty and what you know what's unacceptable and you know and it's, and it's the kind of thing that social media 
really it you know it inflates and mm. you know it yeah definitely definitely it's just it's become a real part of scottish politics in recent years hasn't it which is actually i suppose what what mandy is talking about with her podcast guest today that's right so yes mandy um holy red editor is interviewing Ran Lamont, who is the former Scottish Labour leader and who's standing down as an MSP. And she's she's talking about just this subject, about um, having fought for women's rights, for feminism for many, many years, now being accused of homophobia, transphobia, phobia, being accused of being a, a bigot, and, and just what her experience of this has been like. All right, Joanne, so... How has it come to this that after 20-odd years as an MSP, including time as the leader of the Scottish Labour Party, that someone who like you, who's championed equality throughout your life, you leave the parliament having been branded a turf and a homophobe and someone who wants to roll back equality? How, how has it come to this? I, I honestly, I, I, I don't know. I'm astonished by it at one level. And I think more astonished with the fact I didn't notice and I think that has been part of the problem, is that there's been arguments being won somewhere without it ever being um, an argument that folk who would generally be interested would be engaged in. So I think there was always, in my, from my point of view, a presumption that I want to be as inclusive as possible, as respectful as possible, be aware that the world is changing, and I want to be able to respond to that. And certainly, you know, around women's issues, to suddenly discover that there were things that I would have thought would just be understood and accepted were now being contested was the most astonishing thing. Um, and I think, you know, at the very end, the term woman is now contested. You'd seem to be hostile, transphobic or whatever if you talk about sex discrimination. And yet as a young woman, the thing I understood that you saw from my earliest times, that it was sex discrimination, that women's lives were shaped by their sex, by their opportunities, and challenging that has changed women's lives. And I just think it's just... I think it's it's the, the, the fundamental problem is you cannot win an argument if you won't engage with the argument. And that's where this is... I think a lot of this has come from. And I think we'll go over all of that. I think in some ways it might be... Because I think a lot of women just find where we have reached, astonishing and inexplicable. So in some ways, maybe it's best we go back over some of the old ground and say, does it go back to the 2016 manifesto commitments, which basically all parties almost had a kind of loose agreement that there should be reform of the Gender Recognition Act? And I mean, do you think perhaps that people signed up to something without properly thinking through what this might all mean? Well, I... I think that's absolutely true, and and you know it's it it's it, it in itself contested what is said in um, the manifesto commitment, and I recognise that the people have argued that that's a very strong commitment, but I think it goes back further than that. I think it goes back right to the Gender Recognition Act itself in two thousand and four, where you know in order to make people's lives easier to deal with um, any kind of disadvantaged discrimination, of course people wanted to be supportive, but I don't think. I, you know, I don't think anybody um, realised that by 2016 the argument had moved to where it got to, which was about the right to self-identification, 
without really any enforceable conditions around um, you know, living your life as a woman, which in itself now becomes a contested view. And I would have been contesting that since I was a young woman. And even if, I suppose my argument would be, even if there's a commitment in manifestos to a, a position, if you don't engage with the argument about what the significance of that is, if you, and this has been an issue, um, I think, more recently too, that the way in which I think there are those who would, and it's probably true in other policy areas as well, don't win the argument, get it into the manifestos, get people to um, appear to have signed up to it, and then when they ask questions, they will look, we're already signed up to this. Why are you, cont why are you contesting language that's already been agreed? And at one level, you can see that as a success. But if you've not actually persuaded people, if you've not convinced them, if you've not explained the implications of it, and if you've not tested your own arguments, then you end up um, with significant problems. And I look back you know, to the early days of my own political campaigning, and then the idea that you would... You could persuade people to change policy on, I don't know, equal pay or whatever without even engaging in the argument, really, I think is problematic. That's probably not the best example because people would maybe see that as um, non-contentious, but it's remarkable what was contentious back in the day. I think that's the issue. Like Time moves on, language moves on as well, so nothing should be set in stone. But the idea that well-intentioned policies become so embroiled in just vitriol, really, and as you say, arguments getting shut down. I mean, I think that's been the hardest thing as a woman who, a bit of a mouthy woman, Joanne, <laughs> um, being silenced <laughs> is quite a hard thing. And this argument, I mean, I think the argument about silencing is really important because people will say, you've not been silenced. And my response is that at my stage, I have a voice that I'm able to use. And because people have been silenced, I, need, I felt more of a responsibility to use my voice. And we know, I know from the conversations I have, particularly with young women um, who have contacted me to say that they they're afraid to agree with me or they're afraid to say publicly um, what they think in these issues. And so the silencing is not an accidental byproduct of a difficult conversation. For some people, and you know, there, there are for not everybody, you can't broad brush everybody who's involved in the campaign around these questions, but for some people, it's a strategic decision. Because if you say somebody's hateful and you say, um, you know, that your, your, your motivation in raising these questions is hatred, and therefore I don't have to, I'm not going to talk to you, I don't then have to engage with any of the arguments that have been made. And so what you saw, I think, in the last period, very often, folk like um, myself or, and people who are more closely involved in this over a longer period of time, um, couldn't make the rational arguments because they were their legitimacy was being denied. And as a consequence, these, these the testing of these arguments was never allowed. And then what you got, in my case, where people say, well, of course, that's a dog whistle for hatred, which is about stirring people up. And you think, well, answer the question that I'm putting to you. Debate with me. Argue about this. Don't win the argument somewhere else to get something defined in a certain way. And then when people raise questions about it, say, 
we don't need to talk to you because we have d- already decided that you're motivated by hatred. And it's a, re- it's a, it's a self-destructing thing anyway because you know compelled speech or silence can't last because people will begin you know what people thought they were agreeing to was not what um what some would argue for and i think if there is a gap there then you have to win that argument to persuade people or challenge them and that and that is almost like it's not a question of let's have this argument it's say no, you're wrong, and I don't have to even think about the arguments that you're making. And, and Joanne, I suppose one of the difficulties in all of that, and there's so many different things I want to come back to you on that, but it seems that both sides, if you can call them both sides of this debate, are all people that have equality you would have thought at their heart. Yes. So the difficulty is, you know, I mean, that's the hard thing. You know, how do you argue with somebody that normally you would be an ally of? Well, and it's the most it's the most upsetting thing. It's the most upsetting thing. If somebody says to you, I've seen something that I've been seeing for 25, 30 years, and they now tell me that is a dog whistle for hatred, I, I find that I find it so difficult, and I and I I, I do try very hard, and um and it's not to respond um, in a way that's rude. I think the other thing is, I mean, for my generation of women, robust debate is what you needed to have. You know, the idea that you you can't say to somebody you disagree with them or that they're wrong, that that in itself is a problem. And so you, you miss out the middle bit, which is let's have a respectful argument debate here. And you simply go from saying, so you said that, so you're really hateful, and I don't want anything to do with you. And I don't think that's really... I actually don't think the proper conversations are taking place. I think there's a lot of people, um, and particularly on the side of those who are very strong advocates for trans rights, and I would call them trans allies, who have, have taken upon themselves um, the responsibility or the the challenge of being the people who pushed really hard. And, you know, it is as if the trans community all speaks with one voice. Well, we know that's not true. And that, and I have to say it very often, young emboldened men um, have almost been given permission to push back pretty aggressively against arguments about women's rights now. I, um, I think that's a that emboldening of people who her choosing, taking upon themselves the right to speak on behalf of a community. Um, I don't think that's healthy. Surely you would describe yourself as a trans ally, and yet you've been positioned as someone that must be against trans people. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I hated the idea that I could be perceived as being unfair, um, illiberal in my thinking, closing things down. Um, I hated that, and I still hate it, and I think it's very, um, it's it's counterproductive because if you don't, I want to learn and understand. I want to know if I've not realised. But I think, and this is an example of where the language changed. Um, what was defined as trans changed without that kind of conversation, even amongst people who would have been open to having that conversation. And I, I, I think that is really. 
I, I find that really difficult because, but on the other hand, what I remind myself of is no change was ever made without arguments and engaging. So you have to, you have to test arguments. You have to, you, you know, you, you have to be able to um, think through and have robust disagreements with people. That is healthy. The robust argument, disagreement. You might don't. You don't have to. At one level, there's always this balance. You want to win people's. Um, you want to convince people. You want to win them their hearts to an argument and equality, but always you, you still at the same time want to drive change. So that's always a balance. Um, and you, you were never going to persuade every single sexist in the universe that women's rights were um, uh, justified. But at the same time, you do the more that you can persuade and win people to an argument, the more you can deal with the people who are not to be won. And I think um, this is part of the, the the problem I've got now that you just you, you you go from being somebody who I don't really know anything about this. I would quite like to go to that meeting. That was very interesting. Talk to a few folk to suddenly realizing you've been defined as a known transphobe. You're not just transphobic, but you're a known transphobe. And then for anybody who starts engaging with that discussion after that point, they say, well, of course, she's a known transphobe. So what she's saying is suspect or what the other person is saying is suspect. And I think that is just insidious. Have you had to question yourself about, well, am I transphobic? Was I not aware? Maybe I am. Well, I think if you don't, if you're constantly challenging your own thinking and what is driving your thinking, then then you you can end up in all sorts of different places politically. So, of course, you have to question it, and you, and you think... And part of it actually was, um, I can't believe... I can't believe we've got to this place. How did we get to this? How can I... I mean, I can remember going to earlier meetings in the Parliament and, and being very, very anxious, A, about going, in case it was interpreted in a particular way, and but very, very, very engaged with... Well, the arguments that were being made, just because it was something I hadn't been aware of, and I think like there's there are kind of issues that you know make you think really hard, and the, some of the women who were at the centre of making us pay attention were themselves so reasonable and measured and focused on evidence and producing papers and providing speakers. It's much harder to rubbish them than to rubbish a tweet. Um, and I suppose the, the areas that really made me start thinking was around prisons. The idea that we would have a policy of self-ID, um, of, uh, that, that a, a male prisoner could identify as a woman and the presumption be that they're going to the women's estate. I just thought that that was a, 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 such a massive change in policy and yet we weren't discussing it. And the other one was around sport and I think you know again I look back and I remember uh, I loved Wimbledon and people would always be very dismissive of the women's game and Billie Jean King and people arguing for equal pains or what they don't play in three sets what they're playing five or we're seeing some of that echo today all of the focus in sport being on male athletes and you know the last 20-30 years has been massively transformed in more and more women athletes and the idea that somebody could identify into women's sport, just, I just thought it was just, 
I can't. I couldn't explain it. I couldn't explain it. And that isn't that the difficulty that there there, there are so many things in this, Joanne, that become inexplicable. That it's trying to pick your way through it. I mean, what I found was when you talk about some of those meetings that were held in the Parliament and you were vilified for even attending a meeting. And even when it was trans women that were talking at those meetings, they were branded as the wrong kind of trans women. So you had the wrong kind of trans women, you had the wrong kind of feminists. How do you win? <laughs> you know, yeah. How do you get through it? Well, well, I think one of the things, so I used to say, um, you, need to, you need to talk about women, you need to talk about women's lives. But now, of course, people say, well, we are talking about women's lives. We've just simply redefined what a woman is. And I think because, you know, this argument around um, the hate crime legislation really was about that. Well, of course, we want to protect women. But actually, if you pushed what what they had already, the, the place they had already got to was that women include uh, trans women. So the, so the mantra of trans women are women means that you, in order for that to be true, you have to redefine what a woman is. And so it becomes even more um, complex and complicated. And underneath all of this, I want people to live their best life. And I want people to challenge stereotypes. I want people not to be able to say what a, 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 um, a woman should be interested in, what a girl should be interested in, what a boy should be interested in. I want young people to do what they want. I want them to be as non-conforming um, as they want. And actually, some of this debate, and this is the other side of it, is, in my view, very regressive because it, it, it says that you can tell that there's an issue for some, you know, if somebody's playing with their own toys, for goodness sake. I thought we had managed to get away from that a long time ago. So some of it, and, and again, it's not necessarily mainstream trans ally argument, but there's an element of that which explains you know, somebody's um, gender by stereotypes that we've probably spent our, all of our lives trying to break. Did you find some of the... So, again, too many things to for us to pick through, mm -hmm. but so that argument that um, sex and gender are different. I mean, so when you're faced with um, Scottish Greens, for instance, that will say uh, that sex is not binary, that for me was a concern because here's a party whose whole political agenda around the environment should be predicated on science. Absolutely. And then when it comes to sex and gender, that seems to go out the, the window. Absolutely. And and this whole the thing about um your official terminology is saying that someone's um was assigned at birth. Their gender was assigned, or their sex was assigned at birth. Well, it was observed, and you know, it's a scientific issue. And, and actually, around this argument, say, well, you know, people, most people, I think, think there are two sexes. The evidence tells us that. But it's astonishing the number of people who, who know now or feel now that they can't say that. Not quite sure why they, they can't say it. Um, and so you end up in this ridiculous place where I was asking. The cabinet secretary, did he think there were two sexes or not? And he wouldn't answer. Well, you've got to be able to have, you've got to be able to frame this debate. And I keep coming back to the point to be as respectful and as hungry to understand as possible. 
But if you just simply say, well, we want to be inclusive, who, who, what, what is it that you're that saying there's two sexes is exclusive? You can think about how you then treat people who don't conform or how you respect people who don't conform to what is expected of them. I love that. But you don't, you, 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 the basic building blocks have got to be of common understanding of what words are. And I think that's, that's a, that's a, a major problem. Part of this is, I mean, I, I laughed to myself. I brought up in a very Presbyterian household. And part of me, if I'm being honest, looking back, I quite liked using the word gender because it was kind of more neutral for me than... You didn't have to say sex. didn't have to say sex. <laughs> and I'm thinking, my poor mother and father will be burling in their graves at the, the extent to which I'm bouncing about the political system talking about sex. <laughs> and part of it is that, you know, at one level, it, it, the, in terms of just normal discourse, so people were having conversations in policy terms, they were sometimes seen as the same and it felt easier to say it but actually even back when I was a minister and we were looking at um the, I remember reading a piece about in some policy paper and it was around violence against women and talking about the difference between sex and gender then and understanding that there was a difference and that gender was about constructs and expectations and stereotypes and all the rest of it and I, I think we're now in a place where uh well I, I just I I, I think the, the the bit that you want and I want is for people to live their lives as they as they want, in the way they feel most comfortable, treated with respect and treating others with respect. And actually where we've ended up is in um trying to make something logical. And you know, sort of kind of get into a place where in order for it to fit, you then have to redefine what a woman is. And so you get astonishing situation, I thought. Um, where you get a you know, leading politician being asked by uh, somebody on the Today programme, uh, Radio 4. So if I said to you just now, I will, a male interviewer saying, well, if I say to you now, I'm a woman, would you accept that? And the politician saying yes. And I think the people just didn't, just didn't, I mean, in a, in a, in a way, I can understand why people push back on that because it felt like you were trivialising very serious experiences for people. That's the other thing that you don't want to trivialise or mock or um, diminish people's experiences and feelings. But if you get to lodge, if you don't, uh, if you don't, as you say, understand the science and follow the logic of what you're wanting people to um, accept, then I think you've got a real problem. And I think it, it's the problem. So none of this would matter, would it, if there weren't inherent issues or dangers or concerns about what it means. So if your politics and your feminism is fueled by your biology and being a woman, what are your concerns about all of this? What, what do you think the dangers are? Well, I think it's, if we're denying that women's biology their, 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 their caring responsibility, the fact that they bear children, um, if we deny that that shaped why women ended up vulnerable to violence um, in a, um, with less opportunities you know, in terms of, of jobs 
if we, if we deny what's happened still to girls across the world because of their sex, we can't change women's lives. We can't change men's lives either. We can't make the, the world a better place for us all if we don't understand that women's biology and their experience of their bodies, that we have liberated, women's liberated, have become liberated as they've been taking control of their own bodies, where they've been given autonomy. I mean, I know that I sometimes feel as if I make myself sound as if I'm about 140, but I can remember the headline in the Daily Record when the law was changed to, to make rape and marriage illegal. And I know myself at the time, I was thinking, can trying to understand that argument and debate. I mean, that's, that's not that long ago that women had that little control over their own lives. They didn't control, have control over um, their fertility. They didn't have control over um, their property. All of these things. If you understand that, how do you change women's lives? If we say that, you know, um, that biology is, is biological essentialism or whatever is the term that's used, we are not going to be able to liberate those girls and women who are still abused across the world, who still, as we know, um, are being murdered because of their sex and have been and are being gone into exploited their bodies exploited in prostitution because of their biology because they are women and i think you know you, i i know that there this is the thing that i wrestle with all the time which is to understand and try to create a, a society where people are respected but i fundamentally and profoundly believe that women's lives and their experience is intertwined completely. It's, it, you can't separate off what um, women's lives from their biology and their expectation and what you know the way in which their um, th their lives are led. And, and of course, I think there's another issue around this: is that those most vulnerable women. Those women who are in the abusive relationships, who are traumatised, um, who are in low-paid jobs, whatever it might be, are the ones who are at the front line of policy decisions which perhaps are not affecting those who are making the policy. So the consequence of a policy for the Scottish Prison Service will probably not have an effect on me, but it is having an effect and will have an effect on some of the most vulnerable um, people in our communities and women who are in prison um, disproportionately um, for crimes that have got nothing to do with violence um, and are disproportionately there because of how we, we still, how women's lives are, are, are led. And I, that's my worry is that um, it for, for a lot, this is a theoretical argument at one level for a lot of people. And if you don't, you don't need to, um, you know, am, am I ever going to be in a position where I'm in a women's aid refuge where nobody ever knows what's going to happen to them in their lives but, and, and be re-traumatised? Um, and I think that, that actually around the, the, some of this argument is really bringing that, you have to bring that to the, we, we need to bring that to the centre of our politics. You know, women's equality is not just about how many MSPs you've got. Mm -hmm. 
I think the other issue, though, Joanne, in all of that is it, you need to have a proper discussion. And I suppose on one level, the extreme of what you were talking about, about the way women, young girls can be exploited and it is about their biology is when you talk about things like female genital mutilation. Mm-hmm. And I mean, only a lot in the last couple of weeks, you know, I saw a discussion on Twitter with um, an SNP MP where she was talking about FGM and talking about girls and women and people that were perceived to be girls. I mean, surely to God, there has to be some sense in a discussion about FGM where you recognise biology. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the problem with that is, I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever that the the MP you're talking about would be opposed to FGM. You know, I don't know anything much about it, but I know, you know, the vast majority of people in in this discussion and debate are people who want the best for people. But are follow are allowing, in my view, allowing themselves to go to, um, to uh, to logical conclusions that become so illogical that they actually become um, offensive. So, you know that you can't talk about female genital mutilation. That they, you actually imagine that the folk are carrying out these operations are looking to see if somebody looks like what a girl should look like. Now that that's just that is nonsensical, and I think there needs to be. I mean, part of this is also you know like challenge norms, challenge attitudes. And I think there's another thing, and I, I'm, I, and I think that I'm not, I, I go back to this point, I think that the trans community does not speak with one voice. Um, and I think we need to, I think the advocates for trans should perhaps be doing a little bit more listening themselves because I think they're creating an atmosphere which is, you know, it's not, it's not conducive to finding a way where we can all find solutions to these things, to find answers to these to these questions. And, you know, the the, the, the whole question of um, being accused of saying, for example, that somebody who's um, a trans person is, is more likely to be predatory and using tropes about what causes threats. I mean, I lived through the Section 2A, Section 28 debate in the Parliament, and the letters I got from people saying... Um, if you allow this, this will mean that you know children will be preyed upon in school by um, people who are gay. Deeply offensive. Deeply offensive. So I would never say that because somebody's in a particular community that they, 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 they're predatory. But what I do say is that what I have learned in my life that, that has upset me as much as anything is that predators will go where they can find a space to access vulnerable people. We've only just in the recent weeks watched men in their middle age talking about their experience of being abused as footballers, young footballers, because people who were predators, that didn't mean that people who are football coaches were more predisposed or priests were more predisposed or members of the church were more predisposed to be um, to to abuse anybody, but what it did mean was that we didn't have protections in place where predators would be rebuffed, and we didn't. The story of these footballers was that nobody could believe that it could happen, so they couldn't see what was in front of them, and I, and I do get upset by this argument because I feel so strongly that it is not about seeing that any particular group of people, um, um because of their sexuality, 
um, or their, 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 their sense of gender are more predisposed to be predators, not at all. But the, in whatever setup, whatever organisation we have, we need to be robust in our safeguarding because that that is the history of the last four. Why have we got an inquiry to in-care abuse? Not because people who were working in care were more likely to be predators, but because predators would go to where um, they could have access to vulnerable people. And I, that that is the argument, and I think it needs to be lifted out, but this argument about the discussion we're having just now and say basic first step in any any changes you make, anything you do, is to understand the dangers that some people present and are, the lengths they are willing to go to to um, to groom people to and to make them vulnerable and to abuse them. I mean, I, my, you know, the testimony I've heard over the years from people who have survived abuse um, tells me that we just and I and I get I, I get upset because I think it's such an important argument, and I would never presume about anybody how they might they might behave, but we also know. There are risk factors, and being a male is a big risk factor. Is a big risk factor, and I think we, I would have thought that you know anybody in this argument would want to protect those people who want to live their lives without harming anybody in the way that they choose. Would want with all of us to be part of safeguarding um, vulnerable people and not creating opportunities for people to abuse. Uh, anybody's goodwill or good intentions. I guess that's the bit that I don't understand why that message hasn't got out there. This isn't about being afraid of trans people. This is about lowering the bar in any way to vulnerable people. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And I think that there is, I, I, I would want to work through and talk through all of these discussions and, you know, I'm always alive to the fact that um, I'm fearful of giving any sucker to anyone who has um, a, a view of anybody within the LGBT community that is hostile and, and that, as I described around Section 20 and the kind of views of people, I wouldn't want to give anybody sucker in that regard. Um, but I still have to say that you look at the world and you see that people will take many guises and forms in order to abuse. And the more, and people who themselves are vulnerable, women, trans people who are vulnerable, should see that more than anybody else. They see it. We know it. I mean, the, the argument about women's aid refuges was a hard-fought argument. People didn't think, oh, yeah, just love women-only services. It was one for a reason, because that was what people's experience was. And I think that 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 you know there are all sorts of ways in which um, so much of respecting people and educating people and challenging old-fashioned and dangerous and bigoted attitudes is all part of this. But we must be able to see, at a fundamental level, this is this is we we the, the issue of safeguarding is really important, and I think most people, frankly, in, across all of these areas, would agree to that. The idea for you that you could be accused of being on the wrong side of history, how does that feel personally? Well, I, just, I, I don't even accept that as an argument. I think you have to 
what does that even mean? Yeah. So that, that, that you kind of presume that you've got it right and there are people who are arguing with you um, are wrong and that there is some kind of predetermined... I mean, I suppose what I would say is everything that you come to, you come to through argument. I mean, this is part of, you know, we're not going to this discussion just now, but um, this idea that is in, in politics just now that actually where you're born, the country you're born in, will predetermine what your views are in a whole areas of social policy, whether it's, you know, you're more in favour of taxation and social justice or whatever than people born in another part of um, United Kingdom. That idea that, that you're kind of, um, that something's baked into you. I think everything's choices. You're shaped by what's round about you. You may not know about things and therefore you hold on to ideas because you're lacking awareness, you're not being challenged, you're not being educated, or whatever it might be. But for me, everything's about choices. And if I get to the point where I say, well, actually, all of these concerns I had were driven by um, hostility or driven by a, a ignorance or a lack of thought or a lack of compassion, I would like to think that you could still change your mind, that you can be persuaded that... that um, that you're not fixed in stone somewhere, that it's possible to be wrong about some stuff and then learn and change. I'm always open to that. That's that's part of this, again, I think it's really important why it's the whole silencing thing is so dangerous is that you don't you don't um, allow for the idea that people can change their minds, that they, they have to... It's almost like you have to pass a test. And I, I just don't think that uh, any of the things I came to think about and can believe in or come to the view it's the right thing to do. You could never do any of these without thinking them through and deciding rather than going, well, wait a minute, this looks the way the wind's blowing, so I better go that way or that way. And I think the thing about being on the wrong side, being on the wrong side of history, trying to frame an argument um, without engaging in the argument, I accept I could end up on a whole number of issues and be in the wrong place and, and change my mind. That doesn't mean I was on the wrong side of history. Or it might be, well, actually, these reservations I've got, the rest of the world is... Um, people have, have come to conclusion this is the right thing to do, so I should be testing that. I don't be digging my heels in. I should be testing that argument. Well, as things stand, the issues surrounding the GRA reforms and the arguments about sex and gender, they're not going away. Although for me, it's interesting how quiet some of the main protagonists on these areas are during an election campaign. But we're going to come back in to Parliament in the sixth session. You won't be there. How do you think this is going to get resolved? Well, well, I think one of the things that is interesting, and there really doesn't seem to be much discussion during the election, um, but there have been responses. I think there's about 17,000 responses to the, the, the further consultation. We don't know what those responses say. Um, I'm assuming the government does. Um, and all, all I can ask is that, uh, and hope, that those who will be making the decisions in the parliament and in government will test the arguments and be open in the way in which they engage with people and respect, don't denounce, respect what people's arguments are. And, you know, 
the idea that you can uh, debate, for example, in the hate crime legislation, where the, argument, the debate is foreshadowed by a member in the parliament saying, well, of course, we're going to see more transphobic behaviour in this debate. I think, that, and in a, in a way to close it down, what needs to happen in the next parliament is that the logic and um, consequences of decisions have to be thought. We should be doing it anyway. I mean, if, if you ask me what the, one of the big weaknesses of the parliament in the last period has been, is our reluctance to test arguments and to denounce people who want to test those arguments. So you end up um, with, I think, bad decisions. But it's partly because we've got a parliament that likes to pass legislation to signal things, because that's going to hang up a lot cheaper than going and spending money and changing people's lives. And that's my that's you know my one of my biggest regrets I think is that there's too much of well we'll pass a bit of legislation to show how much we care to send a message and then do nothing else and I, I think you want good law tested to destruction but you then want to you know whatever position people what the parliament decides on GRA you'll need to engage with people in our communities to make sure that folk are safe. I mean, people like that trans people are treated with respect and are safe, and, and their their attitude, their issues addressed, and people have to have a greater understanding, and that's much harder. Hate crime bill was a doddle in comparison with actually tackling people's attitudes that that lead them to the place where they're committing crimes against folk that they that they have contempt for. Has this period soured your time in politics? No. Not at all. Um, you might say it'd be hard to sour something that's, that's um, politics, but that would be unfair. No, I, have a, I, I, I know people don't think it, and they think I'm a bit of a, I don't know, grim creature in some ways, but I'm, I'm a very optimistic spirit. I think I'm you a, like I, them to think that. <laughs> I just, I just, I love argument and I love debate, and I. And I know I can, I, I drive people, I know you sometimes think people's ears start bleeding when I start going on about stuff, and whether it's inside the group or wherever. I love argument and I love the idea that it's possible to change people's lives. And I love the fact, I mean, if you're, from, from my politics, has always been really the things that mattered most to me was the idea that you could, Somebody could come and say, "This is my this is my experience. This is what's happened to me," and you could try and help them. But to understand why that was happening to them, and then taking that into the political sphere, and seeing it written out in policy terms, seeing um, money being invested in it, you know, whether it's you know around issues of disability and and young people in education, or whether it's in a justice system, that is just. I mean, it's fair to say that your whole reasoning for entering politics was A, to see more women elected and represented, but presumably to further the cause of women. I mean, do you feel that you've done that? Do you feel that this parliament has improved the lives of women? I don't think it has. No, it hasn't, because I think um, ultimately I'm an optimist about the, the argument and change and so on. I think. I think the thing that's made it more difficult is just the times that we're living in anyway. I mean, I was reflecting this with someone and, and it's COVID is so difficult 
is so awful in people's lives. It's so frightening when we think about what's ahead of us and what's ahead of people who are most vulnerable, that there's been a kind of a understandable grimness about the Parliament in the last year. So the things, you know, the kind of, even in the Chamber, things are all, you know, understandably and necessarily very serious. But the things that kind of enriched the Parliament around the relationships you had with people and the capacity to kind of push and win arguments is much more difficult. And I think in that context, having a debate that seems so fundamental to the things that I believe in and feeling scolded for even raising them has made that, that makes that has made that argument a difficult one. Um, but the issue itself wouldn't sour me. I think we have to, you know, in looking at all of these issues, we need to find a way of being as challenging as possible, as understanding and as reflective as possible, and look at the evidence and don't have a politics where you've captured the argument somewhere else and then denounce people who are raising issues that don't, for them, have impacts that appear not to have even been considered. And I spoke already about policy in prisons. I mean, the, the people who were last in queue to be considered in that argument were vulnerable women who are in, in prison now. Um, and I think that's just not, not a, good, a good, it's not it's not a good way to do politics. And it's never good, I think, to have um, political decisions be made without the confidence to have them out in the open in public. Um, you have to, ultimately, all arguments have to be won with within our communities. Maybe a moot point here, given that we both grew up with um, a woman as a prime minister, but would you have expected more to be done for women in a parliament that has a first minister as a woman? I think I would expect more to be done in women's lives by a Scottish parliament that was more representative. Maybe that's a more diplomatic way to put it. I think the first minister is a role model in a sense that you know the big things that you would identify as a her strength, her capacity to make a case, to win an argument, not to be bowed down and defeated and, and all the rest of that. That's a very powerful thing for young women to see that we didn't see. I mean, Margaret Thatcher um, didn't have women round about her and didn't want to talk about women's lives, but it's not sufficient. It's part of it, but it's not sufficient because you then need to see what is it about the government that you lead that's making a difference in women's lives. And yes, having a, um, a cabinet that's 50-50 and so on is important, but what are they doing to uh, challenge the ongoing issues that women face in their lives? What are they charged with? And it's, it's a more general point I would make, is this idea that I do think the parliament has stalled. It's become a place where we're not focusing on the consequences of the decisions we're making. And, and the things that shape our decisions. We've got into a, a parliament, you can see it now in the election, where it's about um, signalling things, telling you, I believe in this and I believe in that, look, we don't like hate crime. Um, and then having budgeting decisions, which seem to be much more about we can give you things. And there's a kind of an immaturity around that because just in giving things, you're not thinking, what is the big thing you could do to change um, uh, lots of disadvantaged groups' lives? 
and one of the big things I would argue is you need to invest more in local government. You need to invest more in the understanding of of women's lives as carers, both as workers and, and as uh, unpaid carers. All of that is part of women's lives, and it's not sufficient, I don't think, to have a strategy. I mean, you know, the, the, the argument about don't tell me what you care about, show me your budgets. You should be able to show in the decisions you're making what your priorities are. On the mature debate stuff, Joanne, I mean, in a way, the whole GRA issue and the way it's become mired reminds me of the way you were vilified when you tried to get people to have a grown-up debate about things like, which was, you know, symbolised as the something for nothing culture, but want you wanted people to start talking about universal benefits. And really, that got you nowhere. Well, it was... Yes, it was hugely frustrating. Um, and you can think back and say, well, was there ways I could have argued the corner or was there phrases? It was, it was actually a precursor of that thing where you pick out a phrase and reinterpret that phrase and then denounce, you know, use that phrase to beat somebody over the head with. We're seeing a lot of that around, I think, the debate in GRA. But to me, it was always, it was, always, it was a, a politics that came for me from the left, which is how do we... Um, redistribute, redistribute wealth? How do we redistribute power? How do we give people opportunities? And the idea that... You, so, because we all accept that not everything is universal. Everybody has their own balance between universal and targeted spend. And my argument was we should need to have a much more serious argument about... that. You, if In spending money on one thing... It's not something for nothing culture. It is in spending money on one thing, you're not spending on something else. Make that an act of choice. Make that an act of choice. Don't say, and you, you see this argument in, around free school meals and baby boxes. Nobody's saying these things are bad things. Why is feeding children a bad thing or why would be welcoming a new child into the world a good thing? My question is, is there something we could spend on another good thing that would make a bigger difference to those who are most vulnerable. Um, you know, John Swinney made an announcement at their conference, the SNP conference, that they were going to spend £230 million a year on free school meals. Now, there might be a public health argument for that. There might be um, an inclusive argument for that. But I have to be honest and say, if I had, if I was had £230 million a year to spend in education, the first place I would go to would not be free school meals. And I know my own colleagues don't necessarily agree with me in this. I would be spending it on getting closest to the families who are most vulnerable, who have suffered most from um, what's happened with COVID. Whether you've got a child with a disability that you've been caring for on your own without support and without respite, whether it's children you know, with additional support needs have not been given the access to the support they need to learn, or whether it's you know vulnerable children in very difficult family circumstances who are not engaging with school at all, I would at least want to have the argument about could we could we spend the money on that? Is that a re- and that's what I mean by um, a, a mature and, and robust argument because there are people who absolutely profoundly believe that in public health terms and in fairness terms you should prioritise preschool meals, but the problem is. You know, you, you, if I say that, or if I say baby boxes, are they really? Are they, is it a public health measure? Is it, or is there something else we could do for vulnerable mums when their babies are first born? 
that becomes an argument but well of course you want children to starve and you don't want to welcome babies into the world i mean that's that kind of that the crudeness around some of these arguments the, the denunciatory tone that's the term tone of the argument i've been guilty of it myself everybody sees demons in other people and want to denounce them but with you maybe i thought the parliament would in in maturing that would be the fundamental thing. Can we all stop um, infantilising the electorate by giving them things and talking about what are your priorities? What does good public services look like? What does a good quality education look like? Um, rather than, than where we've ended up, where there's so many things are just off limits. And you see it in the budget debate every year. There are things you, you can't really have a conversation about because if you want to have a conversation about that, you're then characterised as something. He doesn't care. So we have a debate in the budget every year. And, every, you know, on the government side, it's always an absolutely fabulous budget. And then the Greens come along and say, well, we would like you to do this. And they say, well, now we've got an even better, more fabulous budget. And other people maybe make cases and argue for things and so on. But you then the budget's passed and I don't vote for it. And I'm then told I don't want to pay local government workers and I don't want to have a good care service and I don't want children to be educated because I vote against the budget. I mean, that's just, that kind of, and everybody kind of at one level engages as childish nonsense. Um, and it actually doesn't get to the heart of the debate that we need to have, which is not about what are the good things and the bad things to spend money on, but what are the good things and what are the better things? And a perspective on equality allows you to test that argument, because it says, it doesn't presume that, so for example, there is a case we made around um, the free bus pass, for example, which is that people in poorer communities disproportionately don't have cars and don't have access to other ways to, to get about. And it means that older people go out and, and out and about. So there's an argument for that. There are other arguments on the, on the other side. But again, as I go back to the point, it's not been allowed to have the argument means that in government you continue to do things when actually you could have been really bold and done them in another way and bring people with you. I mean, actually, we introduced uh, uh, free central heating and there was an argument for it. There was a kind of an infrastructure argument around people's housing and poor heating and all the rest of it. And quietly over time, I think when Alec Neal was the Cabinet Secretary, it was shifted so that the kind of targeting of that investment changed over time when you went, you didn't need the same kind of everybody's entitled to this. And it was done quietly. And I actually think, you know, looking back, it was probably the right thing to do. Um, but there's so many of them have just got stuck now. They've become issues that uh, uh, to, to, to suggest that perhaps as a, a drive against poverty, you disproportionately spend new money on people who are not poor is never the way the argument's made but maybe we, we should at least be thinking about that. Joanne, I remember you saying to me at some point over the years that family will always protect you from yourself in that they'll keep your feet on the ground, don't let you get too above yourself. But I wondered how the family have reacted, particularly Faye, your daughter, to the way that you've sometimes been portrayed, particularly around the sex and gender issue. Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is I think probably the family more generally... Um, I think, like, the, the sharpness of that debate, they're not aware of it in the same way. In fact, in the early days, I recall asking 
for what a cis woman was. So because things that have become what people think they understand, actually, and I was really trying to test the argument, and she's been really good in kind of, from her perspective, being able to say to me, well, this is the argument discussion that's going on. Um, so that, that that has that has been really interesting to see and to have an awareness of maybe how younger women feel about these things. And also conscious, I think, more generally that... Uh, no child should be blamed for their parents' inadequacy. So we've always tried to have a proper conversation. Um, you know, it's not the I'm sure it's not the first time or the last time that I've embarrassed them all. Um, but I think really the thing about family is that they're the people who really know what your motives are. And so if somebody's ascribing hatred to you, that really troubles you. Know, it, it, that that's such a a, a horrible thing for MD to say. Or, or to feel that's how people feel about you, but then your own family know you, so I think they're able to. And and that is a thing about political life that I guess you know the way in which somebody may want to describe you can be very very far from what your own family see every day. So that that's that's why I think family both yeah stop you getting any fancy notions of yourself, but also are a real haven. Because you know that's the place where people really know who you are and what motivates you. So that's it's like and friends and and, and more broadly, because I think for for not not to leave the point, but I think when somebody says something so serious about somebody that you respect, I'm not talking about me now. I'm talking about the way I looked at this world when I started thinking about it, and the people I was hearing were engaged and thoughtful and serious and troubled about all of this but in another part of the the the, the discussion they were being denounced as hateful and so I, that actually that gap between what you thought of somebody and what they're being accused of actually drew me into the debate and I think that's happened to a lot of people you say how can that possibly be how could that person um who you know for all those years I mean it's something like John McAlpin it was, it was somebody who was raising these questions and you know I would regard John as a a significant player inside the SNP and a political opponent. But when I was listening to her talking about, you know, um, her her understanding of women's issues as a younger woman and all the rest of it, and I'm thinking, how can, how, how, why are they denouncing her for this? And I actually think that harshness of the of the conversation does draw people in because they think nothing can justify that kind of language and that kind of tone and that kind of denunciation. There must be something else here. And that's my hope for it. I think that the the more people want to ask the questions, the more there's a serious conversation with people in the LGBTQ, the, the trans community itself, and try to understand that. And the more we just get away from the kind of denouncing and outrage and stuff that just obscures so much and it does prompt question me, well, that's a serious person, why have they been accused of that? I think that's it. That is a, as I said, if you have want to have the debate, have the debate in public about all of these questions, have it and win the argument and challenge those who are being, who are motivated by hatred. But to, to, the way it has happened is it's, it's prevented, I think, a proper understanding and has added to the problems. Are you hopeful for the sixth session of the Parliament? Do you think it'll be any better? Well, it, 
I think you have to be optimistic. I think there's a thing about the, the parliament refreshing itself. We don't know who the people will be in the next parliament. We don't know how it will be configured. Um, um, as I said, things have been sort of grim, really, and terribly serious, and they have to be because of the times that we're living in. And I, I just hope that wherever it comes from, there's a liberation from all of the horrible stuff that happened in this session. I mean, like internal and SNP, that we just hope we can move away beyond that, that even while people have an argument about the constitution of the country, there will be a seriousness of purpose. My view is the next part, the seriousness of purpose that's required that um, to look at the consequences of the pandemic for people in their lives and what can we, we can't sort everything, but what can government at Scottish level do to alleviate that? My mother used to have a phrase when we'd be asking for stuff and that she would say, um, and why can't we have such such? It's because um, every penny we have was earned from the sweat of your father's brow. And it was her way of saying, don't waste money. Know how hard it was to get that money. And I think in the next parliament, we should have that attitude to public spending, that everything we spend money on is focused on the economic opportunities that people have, that their, their education, their health, their life chances, everything should be focused on that. So we shouldn't be spending money that's um, um, only purpose is to amplify the government's message or amplify the opposition, whatever it might be, but that everything, everything should be on that. And I think if the, if the new parliament rises to the grave challenges of COVID and understands that, then yes, of course, it will be a place where... Um, its purpose, which was to protect people in really tough times and to understand the diversity of experience in people's lives that need to be addressed and the sheer injustice that people face in their lives now because of, um, you know, whether they have a, whether they're disabled or whether they're born into a family with no money or living in poverty or whatever, the sheer injustice of that um, can be, we have now a reason really more than ever before to say this has to be, this is our purpose. Um, and I, I I think people, I'm, I'm optimistic, I think, that people see the scale of the challenge and the necessity not to be indulgent in the face of that, I'm sure it will be realised across the parties. No regrets about not being part of it? Um, no, I used to say that uh, if I'd still been teaching, I would have been a lady that lunched by about five years ago because <laughs> with the nature of things, I would have probably had an offer for an early uh, an early deal. I mean, there's obviously regrets because, you know, people are obliged to listen to you. They don't maybe have to pay any attention, but you do get an opportunity to say stuff. You can ask people questions that they're obliged to answer. Um, you can find a way of... You know, you have opportunities to speak on behalf of people, which is the most powerful thing of all to be able to do. So that's a massive privilege. But uh, it would have been indulgence for me to think that I mattered so much that I could, I needed to continue. I think that, um, yes, I think the Parliament needs to, re you take opportunities to refresh. And I think as a, if I'd still been teaching, I would have been saying, I want to retire at a point where I can still be doing, I, I still want to care about my job and I want to be active in the world. And I think that's where I got to. Um, I, I just made a decision a long time ago, decided as soon as I was elected, I wanted to do the very best I could from 2016, but that it would be, it was a, it was a sensible time to move on. I'm sure your fight will go on, sister. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I mean, the thing is, yeah, I mean, I think there's a kind of a thing about uh, women's politics and all that stuff that, you know, women, whatever they are, you maybe people find a voice for women in different places, whether it's in journalism or whether it's, you know, in their workplace or wherever. And uh, that, that, that's, that's just what stroppy women of a certain generation have done. So I think, I think that uh, that will continue. As someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends, because everybody has an interest in politics.